Hello and welcome to the Consistency Project with E.C. Sinkowski. My name is Patrick Cummings and every episode, I have the privilege of having a discussion with E.C. on subject matters that range from nutrition to fitness to the choices we can all make to live a healthier, more functional life. By exploring both the principles at play and the actions worth carrying out as a result, it's our goal to get you thinking, get you moving, and get you taking more consistent steps toward optimizing your well-being. Thank you as always for tuning into the show. Hey, E.C. Hey there. How are you? Good. How are you? I just want to point out that I read that intro for every episode, <laughs> and I try really hard to put the emphasis on different syllables every single emphasis. time. Emphasis. And I hope people appreciate it. We're doing a Quick Bites. Quick mm. Bites is when you kind of collect good questions from listeners, questions that are worth answering, but perhaps aren't do, worth doing the 20 to 30 minute deep dives that we often do. And so excited to get back at it. Kind of give us an update on Quick Bites. Where do people get mm. questions into the queue and all that stuff, just so folks, if they're new to the show, know. Yeah. Yeah, the best way to get a question in the queue is optimizemenutrition.com slash email. I'll also have a link in the show notes, but you know, I can't really give a timeline for when your question will be answered. I We do these about once a month. Sometimes it's almost like once every five episodes, I think, or so. I also try to pro- provide some diversity of topics. So, you know, if yep. your question is very similar to something we just did, And then also a lot of questions become episodes or worked in other episodes. That's happened to several. They've just become full episodes. So I might not even say, you know, and -and so-and-so had a question, but, but it's in there. And also because the queue is growing, which is great. Definitely appreciate all the questions. I, I am trying to add some more Q and A's to my bonus email. So again, get all that content, optimize me, nutrition.com slash email. But really, the answer is listen to every episode twice, <laughs> read every email twice, and it's probably in there somewhere. Okay? It might be in just, there. Just to be safe. Right. All right, right. So we have, as we often do, I think we've got five questions. You tend to challenge yourself to answer them within five minutes, though mm. we don't take that too seriously. But again, five questions that we've got today. First one is from Robin. I'm a 52-year-old CrossFit Masters athlete who is fairly competitive. I'm wondering about joint health and longevity, considering that I hit heavy overhead barbell movements and kipping gymnastics movements pretty hard, regularly good for you. I am starting to feel aches and pains in my knees and shoulders. Perhaps this is a good topic for an episode. Yeah, well, first of all, I just think well done. I mean, starting to feel aches and pains at 52. Yeah. (laughs) Well done on that, right? Now, Joint aches and pains are often from osteoarthritis. That's the wear and tear arthritis. Basically, the protective cartilage wears down over time. And so some of the best ways to actually combat the pain from that is exercise. Both strength training to strengthen the musculature around the joint helps the joint support loads better. But also aerobic stuff has benefits, just the circulation and anything that moves the joint through that full range of motion. I'm assuming Robin was asking me this question for the nutrition perspective, and it turns out we talked about diet, exercise, and supplements a bit for osteoarthritis back in Quick Bites episode five, question five. So link will be in the show notes. And mm-hmm. I already know from her email that doing the 800, she's doing the 800 gram challenge in protein, so she's doing lazy macros. So of course, that generally is going to help things with you know getting stronger, improving recovery, decreasing inflammation generally. And the short of it from that Quick Bites episode was there's not just not a ton of evidence for supplements, really, that you could try things like glucosamine and chondroitin. And and heck, if you get a placebo effect, good for you, you know, run with it. I I certainly have done everything under the sun for my back. Nothing really did that much, but worth a shot sometimes when when you have pain and you want to see if you even get a placebo effect. I just won't recommend anything really that specifically for it. But so, yeah, so diet and exercise end up being the strongest 
That's, but I wanted to take this question when I saw it more actually from the exercise perspective. Mm. I think the key to being a master's athlete is, is really nailing this minimum effective dose idea. We've talked about minimum effective dose related to nutrition and, but it really can be applied to anything. It's, it's what's the least amount of work you need to do to get the results you want. And so for masters, I think it's optimizing this work rest ratio that, that needs to get the most attention, most intention. You know, when you're mm-hmm. younger, you can kind of push the volume a little bit more, but I think you just have to be smarter in the, at the master's level and how that I think really plays out would be, you know, what exactly are the weaknesses that you need to fill? You know, what really needs to change significantly that has to get more time and volume. And then what's good enough just to sort of keep on maintenance mode and, mm-hmm. and what's, and what's good enough for maintenance, that's what you hit less frequently. You know, I think sometimes we can get caught as all CrossFit athletes do. It's like, oh my gosh, that's such a fun workout. I want to do it or everybody's doing it. When really, when you're kind of at a master's competitive level, you want to think, do I need to do that? Is that really overall advancing my competitive level? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the truth is it's really it's much easier, I should say, not really easy to maintain a certain level of fitness than to necessarily change where you are. And so that's why you want to put in effort into what are the things that you really need to improve versus, hey, I can already do sets of 20 kipping pull-ups pretty fast relative to my age cohort. Hey, I don't need to do that every week. Maybe it's the deadlift that I need to touch more often or something like that. And even the things that you do need to touch more often, you want to think about what can I do besides the movement itself? Like if pull-ups are a weakness, yes, work on sets of kipping pull-ups, but this is also where we can do all these other assistance exercises. Maybe it's ring rows, maybe it's gasp, the lat pull down, stuff like that, (laughs) such that we're developing strength for that musculature without necessarily the same kind of taxing load as hundreds and hundreds of reps of that. And then of course you also just want to consider your work to rest ratio in terms of number of days on versus off. You know, I remember talking to Chris Spieler towards the end of his tenure at the CrossFit games. And I think if I'm recalling correctly, I think he switched to two days on one day off, Mm -hmm. except as he was getting much closer to competition, just so that he could have this keep the intensity, but also get more rest on the schedule. So joint aches and pains are somewhat unavoidable, a little bit of wear and tear that's going to happen to all of us. Exercise does help. So you don't want to stop that by any means, but we just have to stay away from that more is always better mindset that I, that I think is really tempting and look critically at what you need to do and what's really beneficial versus just, Oh, I like that. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Got it. Okay. Next question is from Greg. He asks, my brother and his family are now completely gluten and dairy free. They won't eat any food without, with even a trace of either in it, partially because one child is allergic to gluten and partially because he's read some material saying that gluten and dairy are bad news. I am now in the eat, quote, paleo-ish, end quote, 80% of the time camp. Any advice on how to interact with others who are super strict with their dietary guidelines? Yeah. So in Greg's full question, he had mentioned that he kind of knew my opinion about not really trying to convince people when it came to trying to transition them from kind of a standard American diet. But this was kind of really asking the other extreme, what about the people that have gotten overly restrictive on kind of the whole food, meat and veggie thing? I think first thing, you know, if a child is allergic, that does need to be taken very seriously. Allergies, which I think we'll have to bring up in another podcast, 
is legitimate concern. I want to answer this question not in light of that, but more in the general sense of people being unnecessarily restrictive, kind of like, you know, I've read that this is bad type of thing, but I don't, but I don't have any condition. And so, you know, to be honest, it's sort of the same response as before, even in this case, I I still hold the opinion that trying to convince people is really hard, impossible, let's just say. And if they're asking for your opinion, that's a small window of opening that you, you can sort of say, oh yeah, I believe that stuff too. You know, that fruit was so bad or that dairy was so bad. I'm just not convinced the dangers are really there. And if they want to know more, they'll, they'll ask you. I think too, just depending on the relationship, you, you know, whether or not you have more influence or ability to kind of insert yourself in your life. I think sometimes family, you might be able to do that more, maybe not. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You probably know with family how kind of how points of disagreement go, how receptive they are. And just read that, you know, if they're, if you're arguing over like this study said this, it's probably time to back away. (laughs) I think there might be another question here and that's just sort of related to the logistics of dealing with family dinners or, or something like that. You know, if I invite guests over and I'm well, aware of their food preferences. I I do think it's on the host to oblige that, you know, it's true that there is so much junk science out there that, and these intolerance tests where you're not really intolerant to things that there Mm -hmm. is a lot of fear mongering, but you know, I'm not going to invite someone over who has these, even if they're perceived preferences and just sort of ignore them, right? Like belief is really powerful. So if if that really rubs you the wrong way, like if you think they're avoiding it and they don't have to, and you resent them, well, (laughs) maybe you're just not going to invite them over for dinner. Maybe you're also going to find some activities that are more like bring your own food. Maybe it's a picnic, maybe go out to eat something like that. Like I just kind of wouldn't put myself in that position unless I was going to oblige oblige their preferences that I already knew of. On the flip side of that, though, if I was somebody who had a ton of restrictions that differed than quote norm, than just being able to be a guest that could eat anything and it was something that I took seriously or had to take seriously, I would take it on myself to bring a dish. You know, Mm. I think it's really kind of weird to expect your host to accommodate all these food preferences when in reality, there are so many things that somebody could be allergic to that it's almost impossible to create a dish. And so if, if I was the sibling in that case, I would actually say, Hey, I'm planning on bringing a gluten and dairy free dish. Hey, what can I make that you might enjoy to complement the meal or something like that? So I think there's really two sides here. No surprise to this where it can just go much better. One, don't have people over with known preferences that you're not going to (laughs) (laughs) oblige, you know, keep yourself out of that. And then two, if you have restrictions, you, you also want to think that shouldn't be on your, on the host to do everything. Yeah, I've experienced this a little bit. Mm. One of my younger sisters went through a, f- I don't want to call it a phase. I don't want to be right. pedantic about it, but she went through a phase where I think at one point she was only eating fruit, if not just that, primarily that. And I remember, primarily. I remember once she came over to my apartment and she just brought like a bag of clementines <laughs> and just like, we were just hanging out. She had an entire bag of clementines while we were, thankfully she kind of moved through that and is, is back to a, right. a generally kind of whole foods like we talk about here, but it, it's tough. Like there were right. periods where it's like, because it ends up being what I think kind of similar to this, to Greg's question, where it became this kind of like tug of war between, cause this was early, this was r- right around early CrossFit days for me. So mm-hmm. I was also like, yeah, <laughs> I was also things. like, you have to eat meat and right. blah, paleo. So it was this battle between like, whose influence is going to win more. Okay. And it was just, it was just not a fun period no. of time. It was just like, it's kind of like politics. It's like all the other right. things you, you just, at some point you just have to like take a deep breath and realize like, we're not going to meet each other here. 
Right. There's 97% of life that we, we can talk about that sure. we can enjoy that we, and it's just like, we need to just stop focusing on this 3%. Even if I really feel like it's important, right. you really feel like it's important. It's just like, you just got to take a deep breath and realize like, let's just focus on something else. So it's really, it's really hard when it's, when it's siblings. Yes, whatnot. totally. Yeah. Go out to eat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or I love your idea or I love what you said, which is very much what she did. Like if she was coming over, yes. she would make sure that she had something that she could eat. And like she was, she was as accommodating as, as one would expect. So totally. that's, a, I think, a really good point. Okay. Totally. Third question we've got from Catherine. What are your suggestions for towing the line between not obsessing over what your kids eat and what seems like an increased number of sugar fat opportunities. For example, after a soccer game, one of my kids gets a bag with a Gatorade goldfish fruit by the foot, usually chips or pretzels. And if it's someone's birthday on the team that week, usually a cupcake in a society consumed with snacks, snack time, offering snacks, snacks at every function, (laughs) snacks at every function. How would you find the balance? Yeah. Yeah, I love these questions. I get to give parent advice without being one. <laughs> Perfect. So, so you've got a dog now, so it's basically the same okay. thing. Okay, so you're going to chime in here too, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. We did actually touch on this a little bit. Quick bites to question four, so that's going back a bit. But I, I do think snacks are everywhere. I do think snacks are pushed constantly for children. We use them a lot as a reward, as a distraction for something for busy parents to do. And believe yep. me, I know parenting is hard and stressful and constant. I, I get that. I do think we have to be aware of, of how we use food with children. You know, I'm going to tell you from the adult side that one of the hardest things to solve is emotional eating. I have clients that are struggling with that all the time. And these patterns and habits are set really early. So my suggestion, of course, needs to be tailored for the age a bit. But I think just talking about it is a great approach. You know, there is this push not to demonize food, which, you know, I partially agree with. We don't need to demonize cookies, yet we can eat cookies while also knowing that they don't make up primarily a healthy diet, right? So I'm okay with calling things junk food. A lot of it is just the tone and attitude that you have around it. Like, hey guys, this stuff is all just sugar and fat. It can be part of our diet. It's fun, but yeah, it can't be all of the diet, you know? And kids pick up a lot on the tone. You know, if the parent is super weird around food and like slapping cookies out of people's hand, like making extreme diet choices and statements and, you know, all these new diets and clearing out the cupboards and just... I don't know, like kids pick up on this weirdness around food big time. So if the parent models a behavior that includes treats and sweets or whatever without binging, it's easier to get the child to do that as well. Keyword there being easier. I didn't say it was easy. (laughs) Now, usually what I've understood with kids is that a lot of stuff follows with the question (laughs) why (laughs) from what I've learned. Okay. And so here is where I would, especially with this age range, push really hard on the health and the fitness angle and try to leave out the weight stuff because of all of the ramifications that come with that. Right. So this is where I would go with like, you know, apples and chicken and broccoli. They have more vitamins and minerals and fiber. They're really necessary for our immune system and bone density and your skin and your nails. This will help you run faster at soccer, be less sore, all that stuff. Of course, we're going to scale that to the person's age. I'd even say like do a comparison with one of their favorite snack foods versus protein or fruit. Look at kind of the vitamins and minerals. You can look on the back of the label. They only show four as we've discussed, but you know, go on something like the USDA and look at all 28. I know it sounds exciting or something like that, but it's just to sort of show them, Hey, look at all these other things that you get from these foods. If, If you can make it educational, great. I do try to stay away talking about calories. And if that comes up, just I would frame it in the energy frame of mind. Hey, we need energy for your heartbeat. We need energy on the soccer field. That's what calories are all all about and kind of leave it at that. But but trying to take this back to the the post-soccer game scenario for Catherine, you know, I think 
parents also know where these events are. So plan the treat of the day around that. And maybe it is one a day because you're, you know, there's some type of activity like this every day of the week. And they get this bag of, you know, six different goodies. And and the rule is you pick one and then you take the rest. And again, I think some of it's the attitude and the tone around this stuff. Instead of like, oh my God, you know, all this stuff is sugar and a society is going to hell in a handbasket, <laughs> you know, and all of that stuff is just sort of like, hey, which item do you want? You know, and if they're kind of pushing back a little bit. It's like, Hey, you know, the drill, like this isn't how we eat, pick one and let's move on type of thing. Again, I know it's easier said than done, but you need to be kind of normal around food. You need to include it in your diet. I mean, you don't need to include sugar, but you need to show that you can have treats as part of your diet, all of that stuff. You need to have mostly whole foods. You need to keep the house mostly clear of that stuff. And I think the more calm, rational, consistent you are around it, the more kids are going to pick up on that. And I think the last thing I want to say too, just about kids and eating, like, I do think, you know, we get overly concerned on making sure our kids are always having this amazing diverse array of whole unprocessed foods. Just keep encouraging the whole foods they like. Like if they're on the potato and broccoli kick, just run with it. Like if they haven't eaten a piece of fruit in a while, like we're not flipping out. Like we're running on the whole foods that they they do like and and, and just kind of keep that balance for them there. How did I do, Patrick? <laughs> I, I was just going to say, like, for somebody who doesn't actually have to do this, on, like, you, you, I concur with, like, every, I concur okay. and I can say that in practice, all of those things are doable and work as well. Good. <laughs> I won't myself, I won't reiterate too much what you just said, but maybe just a couple things. Yeah. One is, you know, so just for context, I've got, really, this only applies to the five-year-old. He's almost five. I've also got a two-year-old, but he pretty much eats, the kid eats like three eggs every morning. So right, right. now I'm just celebrating the fact <laughs> right, that he, the eggs. Uh, he's a good eater. But yeah, I think the, a couple things, like I think we don't label food as good or bad here, but we will identify when something is a treat. Mm. So he knows Emerson, my, my five-year-old, almost five-year-old, he knows what a treat is. He knows that he doesn't get them very often. And he knows that like, he knows generally what the difference is between them. And so identifying it so that you can identify, oh, this is a treat. Mm. And, oh, we're not doing treats now, or you did that earlier, so we're not going to do another one. Something like that. Yep. I think it's just, again, for, for, I think you're, you're spot on. Like you've got you've to contextualize this to what they're going to understand. And the kind of the black and white for us of the treat and everything else so far has worked really well. Good. I think the only other big thing I thought of as you were, as I was listening to you is you as the parent have to be okay that occasionally they're going to throw a little temper tantrum and your job is to not give in to the temper tantrum, especially if you're in a place where other parents are watching you now, right? I'm just thinking about this soccer game, which is a little bit before where we're at, but we'll be there soon. Yeah, You have to be okay with all the other kids reading their cookies and their cupcakes and everything. And you said, okay, you get the one and they've eaten the one, which in the thing that happens next is, can I have more? You have to be okay to sit there and let them have the little temper tantrum, knowing the other parents are watching you, knowing the other kids are like, why is he freaking out? And just be, to, just taking a Hold deep breath line. and realizing that it's okay, and you'll right. get through it. And in in five minutes, they'll have forgotten about totally. everything that they're having a temper, temper, temper tantrum about, unless you give into it. Because then yeah. the next time, they're like, oh, guess what? If I if I just throw a little fit, I get what I want, right? Totally. And so that's that, I think, is one of the really hard things. It's easier to do in... In private, it's easier to do at the house when there's nobody around. It's harder if you're in a grocery store. It's harder at the soccer game, but that's actually when it's most important. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Fourth question we've got is from Leslie. <laughs> On your macronutrient calculation for fat loss, I have a lady who is around five foot five and 245 pounds. 
Would I really want her to consume 196 grams of protein based on an 1800 calorie diet? That would leave her at 127 grams of carbs and 55 grams of fat. Do you feel like this is a good starting point for her weight loss? Yeah, so I'm actually not totally sure where this fat loss macronutrient calculation that Leslie is referring to is coming from. I certainly have put out various estimates, so I'm, I'm yep. sure it's out there somewhere. I'm just not sure exactly which one. And, and much of that is because I... I actually try to push people towards the method that we discussed on figuring the right amount to eat. That is, they kind of look at their current diet instead of using a calculator to figure out this number. One of the masterclass groups I just wrapped up, a woman who was very successful, she ended up being 500 calories higher and losing weight than her last macro numbers and macro Mm. coaches. And we did find this successful number for her by going through this process of observing what she's eating. And how great is that? She gets to get 500 more calories a day. That's a a full meal. And she's actually losing weight. And so this is one of the reasons I don't like to pick these kind of numbers off the web or off the social media post, because we actually might be in a much better spot. (laughs) So, so (laughs) let's start with where we are. Okay. But, but I get it. Estimates, not all that bad. And so I just wanted to kind of look at this a little bit and talk about the numbers. You know, I recommend the 0.7 grams of protein per pound of body weight, and that can swing up to one for very muscular and very active people. And I usually say to use your current weight to figure out that number, unless you have, let's say 30 plus pounds to lose, in which case you can then use the target weight. Mm -hmm. So in this case, with the numbers Leslie suggested, 196 grams of protein for 245 pounds, that would be a 0.8 multiplier on her current weight. And so I do think that's a bit high. When Mm -hmm. I just see 196 grams of protein, you don't have to tell me the person's size or weight. If we're talking about gen pop, that's going to be a very hard number to sustain. This Mm -hmm. is super general. I don't want to be painted into this box forever. But again, if we're talking about gen pop, if I see a number over 150 for protein, I'm like, Ooh, that's going to be hard to sustain. If, if they're super active, very large male training intensity, very high, very muscular. Okay. Different story, but, but that's not gen pop, right? Okay. So in this case, again, I wouldn't necessarily set all the numbers focusing on protein here. I would choose a protein target based off of her target weight. Now, perhaps the dream target weight in this scenario might be something like 145, dropping her down from 245, but I would actually pick with something in between. Because remember, the lower the weight number to base this protein off of, the less food the person gets. So ultimately, if we have people kind of fill up on chicken and fish, that's going to be better than popcorn and and chips. So there is a little bit of subjectivity here in finding a number that is realistic to hit, but also helps crowd out those other food options. So maybe with this individual, I would choose a target weight of, let's say, 180 pounds. That would be huge progress, right? It's 65 pounds loss from the 245. And so then 180 times the 0.7 multiplier that I put out all the time is about 125 grams of protein. And I think that's definitely realistic to do. That's what I hit every day. So I I know I can say that it's under this 150 level again, which is not an absolute. It's just that when I see intakes over that, I'm like, Ooh, I don't know if they're going to be able to do that. And so that would be where I would start with them on the protein side. I would also have the individual start the 800 gram challenge. No surprise to get in all those fruits and vegetables and let them get consistent there before then trying to set their overall macro targets, make progress there, hopefully before you have to get more dialed in. Got it. Cool. Love it. Okay. Last question we've got is from Bobby. I was hoping you could talk about CBD, the benefits and what's up with cannabinoids. Yeah. Did I I pronounce that correctly? Cannabinoids? (laughs) Cannabinoids. 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 Emphasis on the wrong (laughs) syllable. Okay. (laughs) Okay. 
Yeah. You know, when I saw this question, I was like, maybe I should just do a whole episode on CBD, but I think it would be a lot of time to basically say we don't have much evidence. Although, you know, we've done that before, Patrick. So <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of our MO around here. <laughs> yeah, so maybe, maybe I still will develop this into a full mm. one, but very briefly, we have an endocannabinoid system. That relies on signaling molecules called endocannabinoids, no surprise, and that helps regulate processes like pain, memory, immunity, mood, stress. Now, some of these signaling molecules are made endogenously, that means within the body, and then cannabinoids from the cannabis plant can also affect these processes. So the cannabis plant, which is where we get marijuana, of course, it has two main cannabinoids, THC, we all know that one, the psychoactive one, but then there's also cannabidiol, and that's CBD, which is... Mm almost like the new collagen, right? Like it's in every Mm -hmm. supplement, product, drink, you name it now has CBD. used to be everything collagen, now it's everything CBD. Proponents of CBD, they say that can help with chronic pain, inflammation, migraines, autoimmune diseases, depression, anxiety, sleep. I'm sure there's other things too. You know, there's a really great review paper by White from 2019 in the show notes about CBD that went through the existing research on it, as well as some problems with supplementation none of which will come as a surprise to our listeners as we've been through in the Supplements in the Worried Well podcast. But in terms of drug options, the FDA has approved a single CBD product for two forms of drug resistance drug-resistant epilepsy. That's it. There's also a great NIH website that has a review of the different conditions and the studies that have been done as well on CBD that I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to look up specific conditions. Because overall, the research is pretty underwhelming. I just want to touch briefly on three areas that I think I hear about CBD the most for. That would be pain, anxiety, and sleep. Maybe that's just biased on what, what's being shown on my ads on, on Facebook and Instagram, but I feel like those are the ones that I see most often. Yep. The problem with a lot of these studies is they tend to have a very small sample size, so not a lot of people. They don't reach statistical significance or the side effects of CBD are problematic. And so this is definitely true of, of the pain and the anxiety studies. There was this one study that gets cited about anxiety that did find a statistically significant effect. Very small study, only 24 people. They had social anxiety disorder, and they found that those that took CBD had less anxiety on a public speaking test. Mm. (laughs) Okay, so here we have this one that's like, okay, it's not six people, still very small. They are less anxious when they have to perform a specific test. I mean, interesting, definitely not enough evidence to just say, okay, use CBD for anxiety generally, right? So that's kind of like when we start to see studies that actually then have significance and we look at them like this, it's like, okay, it's still not enough to really just recommend this broadly. As for sleep, I found a 2020 paper by Surev in the show notes. What they found, quote, results indicated that there is insufficient evidence to support routine clinical use of cannabinoid therapy therapies for the treatment of any sleep disorder, given the lack of published research and the moderate to high risk of bias identified within the majority of preclinical and clinical studies completed to date, end quote. So that's a no. And then any of these CBD sleep supplements, I would encourage you to check it and see if there's melatonin, right? Mm. Because if it's got melatonin, I think that's going to be the sleep effect, not necessarily the, the CBD. And then I just wanted to bring up again, because we tend to have this high trust in supplements, some of the issues that we've talked about before, that when we have a supplement that's not a regulated drug, what you're getting is often questionable, not just in terms of the CBD concentration, but also contamination. So in that white paper, they've reported on a 2016 study where 84 non-FDA products, because there was only that one FDA product that's been approved. So 84 different CBD products from 31 different companies 
they measured their CBD content in them and only 31% were labeled correctly. So basically all the others were either had more or less CBD than what's on the back of the label. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of contamination, (laughs) 21% of the test samples contain THC. Mm. (laughs) Supposedly you're not going to get that in CBD products, right? Maybe you want that, but (laughs) in theory, you're not supposed to be getting that right. So, and there's other reports of other contaminants as well, just like other supplements as we've discussed. So, you know, I think we just always have to be aware that this is less regulated and therefore it's less likely you're getting what you think you're getting. I do also think that we don't hear much and maybe maybe it's just what again shows up in my feed, you know, the negative side effects, who's going to be selling a product and let you know about the negative side effects. But what I understand from NIH that there are some negative side effects might be GI stuff, might be sleepiness, might be some issues with liver function. But there's also some reservations from the FDA about CBD due to possible suicide ideation. I guess anticonvulsants, so hence used in epilepsy, come with a two times higher risk of that. Now, mm. you know, is that conclusive? No, but I think that's some of the reasons why F- FDA is looking at it for very specific uses and, of course, has to meet standards of efficacy. So I just think people should just be cautious about supplements. Like, it's very easy to slap something on a supplement with our current regulation and say it has all of these positive effects, but do you know that you're actually getting that? And what are the potential negative effects from it. So I don't have any recommendations for it besides what it's on the market for, for its therapeutic use. Got it. Those were our quick bites for this month. We talked about it at the start, but what's the best way to get questions into the very evolved, very organized system that you I'm sure have? OptimizeMeNutrition.com slash email. Got it. Okay, you see, thank you so much. Thank you, everybody out there for sending us your questions. We'll keep getting to them as soon as we can. Thank you for your ratings and your reviews. If you haven't yet, they do help new folks find the show. So if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, just give us a little rating and a review if you can. Thank you. Thank you, we see. We'll be back next week for another episode of The Consistency Project. see here. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the show. Thank you as well for all the support for the five-star ratings and the reviews and for telling your friends or family about the podcast that really does help the podcast grow. And if you want to get the most recent info from me and be up to date on all of my content, the best place for that is my email list. So you can subscribe at optimizemenutrition.com slash email. I send out emails (laughs) weekly-ish, and that's also the best place to get your question in the queue for Quick Bites episodes. So again, that's optimizemenutrition.com slash email, and there's also a link in the show notes.